Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Katherine Shen. Doctors and scientists are increasingly seeing obesity as a complex disease that needs to be treated as such. Today, we talk about the psychology of obesity and emotional eating. We learn about binge eating disorder and how stress and trauma can impact our metabolism and how we eat. Going into the holidays and the new year, are you thinking about health and weight? Joining us now is Dr. Sherry Pagato, licensed clinical psychologist and professor at University of Connecticut. She researches weight management. Dr. Pagato, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. You can also join the conversation, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Um, Dr. Pagato, we want to start with um, talking about how weight or body mass index is connected to our emotional and mental health. Great question and a big question. Um, They're definitely connected. Um, And I would say they're connected through our our eating behavior, our physical activity, kind of how we live our lives. So the connection is sort of mediated through these other factors. Um, Our emotions, whether positive or negative, can actually drive us to eat certain types of foods. Um, And then other emotions like feeling tired, fatigued, worn out, stressed, um, can also decrease our motivation to be active. And so these things all kind of, you know, work together to um, sometimes affect our weight. And is this connection something that doctors consider when they're working with obese patients, um, emotional health? Yeah, that's a great question. I I don't know that that's the case. I've worked with a lot of patients who are struggling with their weight. And one thing they do say is that their physicians don't necessarily understand the emotional aspects in medical training. Um, This isn't kind of a, a standard part of medical training. So I'm not surprised that doctors may not have this background. However, um, some physicians do get a certification in um, dealing with obesity, and in which case I would probably look for a doctor who has that type of specialty, and they they will likely have a, a stronger background in, into these, um, not just psychological variables, but the biological variables that go into obesity. Obesity is actually quite complex. There are all kinds of variables from cells to our environment to society that impact our weight. So it's quite complex. And so it kind of does require a bit of a specialization for any healthcare provider to kind of truly understand what's going on there. Well, I'm glad you mentioned the biological um, aspect of it because you mentioned the physical and emotional stressors. I want to touch on the biological aspect a little bit more because it pushes against the idea that it's a personal responsibility. Uh, Can you elaborate on that a little bit more? Yeah. So, you know, this idea of personal responsibility is really frustrating um, because it's just sort of a a simplified way of people trying to understand obesity. Um, Obesity is very complex. Um, So the biological side um, in itself is multifactorial. So, for example, 
Um, there are a lot of biological variations in things like appetite. Some people have naturally much stronger appetites. Other people have less appetites. And you probably see that amongst the folks that you know. Um, our bodies also vary in how it re how they respond to exercise, where some people burn more calories than others. Some people have higher metabolisms than others. So there, we have all these sort of biological factors that affect not just our diets, and um, but also uh, our physical activity, as well as our emotions. Um, so that's sort of one complex side of the equation. Then we have our environment. And as anyone who lives in the U.S. knows our environment, you know, is makes fast food, convenience food, highly processed foods, extremely available. Like any of us could hop on our phone, order a Big Mac and have it here in 30 minutes. Um, so the availability of unhealthy foods um, is dangerous for us. So we have this sort of toxic food environment. Um, and then when that interacts with our biology, so for some of us, you know, our bi biology isn't necessarily um, making us thinner. Um, so if your biology is such that it supports, you know, um, it has uh, you with a greater appetite, maybe your body doesn't respond as well to exercise, your metabolism isn't quite high, that interacts with this environment in ways that, you know, can make maintaining or um, losing weight um, very difficult. So it's, for some people, it's much more difficult than others. So it does not boil down to personal responsibility. Think of it this way. It's like uh, losing weight is like an obstacle course. And for some people, that obstacle obstacle course is extremely challenging. And for other people, not so much at all. And so for, um, for us to say like, oh, well, you, you, you're just not trying hard enough is really a failure to understand what that person is up against. Well, you mentioned a lot of factors, and it sounds like everything is connected with each other, you know, your physical health, your emotional health. So what about when it comes to when someone is feeling stressed? I you know, imagine that impacts your hormones. It, it, everyone reacts to it differently. Can you talk about that? Yeah, so stress can have kind of a toxic effect on our bodies in so many ways, especially chronic stress. So Stress does affect our eating in actually quite biological ways. I know sometimes people feel like, oh, you know, I'm stress eating. Um, I should be able to control this. But what's actually happening when you get stressed is um, stress hormones fire. Cortisol is a stress hormone. And cortisol is something that actually can result in our appetite spiking. So if you're feeling hungry um, shortly after feeling really stressed out, um, that's your body talking. Um, the, your stress hormones are are impacting your blood sugar, impact your insulin response, imp impact your appetite hormones. And um, basically what they do is they put your body in fight or flight. Um, when you get stressed, your body needs energy to fight or flight. Um, however, most of our modern day stressors don't really require us to be fighting or flighting necessarily, at least not from a physical standpoint. But part of that fight or flight response is a spike in your blood sugar. Um, because of our modern day stressors, we don't really need that stress, that spike in blood sugar. So what's going to happen is our insulin goes up. This makes us feel hungry. And that's why we kind of have that, oh, I'd want to grab something. I want to eat something after we're really feeling stressed. We're probably also trying to comfort ourselves there as well. Um, so unfortunately, stress has this impact on our body. One thing that could be really useful, although it can be very challenging to do when you're feeling stressed, is to actually get a little bit of physical activity because your stress has sort of prepared your body for that. So that natural response um, can actually buffer that stress response 
that natural response to be active. So running up and down the stairs, going for a short walk, um, will probably thwart that urge to eat. Um, although I certainly understand when you're feeling really stressed out, I feel this myself, like it can be the hardest time to exercise. Um, but even just a little bit, I think you, you, you could find that that has, um, an impact on, on that urge to want to snack and eat. I'm sure it'll really resonate with people that, you know, little by little goes far. You don't have to do too much at once. And so in, in this view of obesity as a disease and not a matter of willpower, um, how have you seen this change and evolve over the years, especially as we are more exposed to information, as we get more education? Are clinicians and people coming around to this idea? Slowly. Um, I mean, there's still this notion of personal responsibility, personal choice. I think we are seeing healthcare providers definitely getting more educated about it. Um, so I think there's been good movement on that end. Um, although I still think there are healthcare providers out there who who may kind of align with personal responsibility, um, give advice like just eat less and exercise more um, as if it's that easy. Um, in society, I feel like there's still a lot of weight stigma um, and it just sort of makes matters worse. So it would be nice to see a bigger shift in society of people kind of better understanding the complexities that go into body weight instead of making that sort of knee-jerk assumption that this person is just not trying hard enough. And from your from your perspective, um, what do you think people can do to sort of help fight against that barrier or fight against that stigma? Yeah, I mean, so if you're on the receiving end of that stigma, I, I think it's important to try to understand that it's coming from ignorance. The person doesn't understand. Um, it doesn't make it feel any better when somebody is being critical or fat shaming you. Um, but it, it really is coming from a point of ignorance. Um, and uh, if you're experiencing that from a healthcare provider, I would say to get a different one. Honestly, um, you know, we can't, it's, pa- it's not the patient's job to educate your healthcare providers. Um, so finding one that um, understands and appreciates the complexity of body weight um, will, I think, go a long way in terms of getting the care that you need. I think based on what we've been talking about, I feel like I might know this next answer, but I have to ask the question that in public policy, do we still view obesity as a matter of willpower? I think we do. I think we really do. There's always this struggle against this idea of personal responsibility. There's so many policies, you know, that we could be pushing forward that that receive a lot of resistance. Um, and there's not really like any one policy that's going to, you know, change the game necessarily. You'd really have to um, be invested in understanding the complexities and, and, um, looking at policies that are evidence-driven and that sort of thing. I loved what Michelle Obama was doing years ago. We were off to such a great start with her initiatives. Um, but that kind of came to a, uh, a bit of a halt, um, when that administration ended. But, um, I think there's hope on the policy side, but it's, it's always an uphill battle. And so with with holidays coming up, a lot of people struggle with overeating and emotional eating and the incoming new year. Um, How should they manage this eating cycle, you think? Yeah, the holidays are kind of the perfect storm um, because we've got the stress. We're surrounded by all kinds of tasty foods. It's cold and dark. It's the darkest month of the year. Um, So getting outside is difficult. We're not getting that sunlight. Um, You know, and a lot of people want to kind of, you know, 
not think about it until New Year's. You know, you've got the New Year's resolution. Um, you know, one thing that I would say is to, if you're thinking about making a change, you're, you're thinking about getting healthier, um, making healthier diet changes, getting more active is to not necessarily wait to make that change until New Year's, but, you know, um, make that change now. Um, because if you can do it over the holidays, you've really passed the hardest test you're going to have. Um, and so in terms of surviving the holidays, you know, thinking about ways you can make your traditions a little bit healthier, um, you know, looking at the recipes that you're using, maybe making, you know, fewer snacks and treats, um, thinking about ways to be active with family, you know, getting out for for walks or like active video games are a ton of fun. Um, so really kind of thinking about your traditions and um, coming up with ways to make them a little bit healthier. On the stress side, um, I think setting boundaries is important. Um, if there are stressful situations that you're going into to, you know, I guess set yourself free of any guilt around any boundary that you need to set for yourself, whether that means, you know, cutting visits short or um, making the traditions what you need them to be in order for it to be stress-free. Um, so it's tricky um, to, to navigate the holiday season. There's some research to show that the weight that we gain as we age each year really kind of occurs in those holiday months, November, December. So I think they are pivotal months when um, we think about weight gain over the lifespan. Um, so like I said, uh, if you can be successful over the holidays, meaning, you know, trying to remain weight neutral, getting your physical activity in, making healthy diet choices for the most part, um, then you've passed the hardest test that's going to be in front of you. So um, let's pretend like today is New Year's Day <laughs> and um, commit ourselves to any healthy uh, lifestyle choices that we see in our future, but might feel like it'd be easier to wait. But I think that's a great way of saying it. I feel like a lot of people are fighting against New Year's resolutions on New Year's. So I think you've got something going on there. Um, but, you know, it's it's challenging for anyone who has to go through this. But what happens when you're addressing obesity in children? How do you navigate through that carefully? And I imagine perhaps differently. Yeah, I mean, when it comes to children, I think um, and I think when it comes to adults, too, like we, we need to focus on um healthiness as opposed to body mass index. Um, so um, when working with children, if it's your own children, I have a child, um, uh, you know, encouraging them to be physically active. We know that's healthy, um, encouraging healthy choices. As a parent, it's so important to set your child up for success by what you bring into the house. Because again, like we are very affected by our environments. A home environment is the one that we can sort of protect the best because we have control over it. Um, so I think that's important for parents is to make sure that you're providing healthy choices and also healthy choices that aren't competing with unhealthy choices. Because if you put an apple and a Snicker bar in front of anybody, we all know what choice we want to make there. Um, and so uh, making sure that the environment isn't one where we're sort of setting ourselves and our whole family up for failure. I think role modeling is important too. Um, when it comes to children, you know, they watch our every mood, 
a move, you know, even if they seem like they don't want to be like us, I have a teenager. So it seems like she goes against everything I say. Um, but they're still watching, like, even if they're rejecting what we're saying. Um, and, and so it's important that, you know, we are leading the lifestyle that we're hoping that our children lead. And again, I think the most important thing is focusing on health, um, and not weight and body mass index and that sort of thing. Um, that can be a conversation with their doctor. If you are concerned about their weight, um, I might speak directly with the pediatrician, um, about options. Um, but from the standpoint of being the parent, um, I do think the focus on health is going to be the most impactful and the least stigmatizing teenage years, especially preteen years. Um, there's a lot of weight stigma, um, and a lot of, you know, body image is developing in these, in those years. And so we just want to be very careful about what tones, you know, we set as the child develops into an adult. And we know that, um, habits during childhood definitely affect our adult habits. And so there's no better opportunity, you know, to get the family healthy is when you have, um, children. So just real quickly, we have a couple minutes left here. Um, when you think about how much the United States is overweight or obese, is binge eating disorder and emotional eating being unrecognized and undiagnosed? Um, it's a great question. So eating, emotional eating isn't necessarily a diagnosis. You know, um, binge eating disorder is. Um, it's probably underdiagnosed because the folks most experienced with that diagnosis would be a psychologist. And as a clinical psychologist myself, um, a, a lot of times people will, you know, they go to their primary care doctor or maybe a dietitian um, to talk about their eating and their weight. Um, and so those folks may not have the expertise to make that diagnosis. Emotional eating is something that sort of flies under the radar because it's not a diagnosis per se, um, but a psychologist or a mental health provider would definitely have um, the experience to kind of help sort through that as opposed to some other healthcare providers that may not necessarily have that background. So I think it's, if it's underdiagnosed or under-recognized, it, it may be a function of the professionals that we're going to um, and not them not having necessarily the, the background to identify those patterns. From Connecticut Public Radio, this is where we live. I'm Catherine Shen. That was Dr. Sherry Pagato, licensed clinical psychologist and professor at the University of Connecticut. She researches weight management. Dr. Pagato, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. Coming up, we hear about a recent addition to the DSM, which is a standard classification of mental disorders, of BED, or binge eating disorder. You can join the conversation, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. 
So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. As we just heard from Dr. Sherry Pagato, our weight can be impacted by our physical health as much as our mental health. Our mental health can also impact the way we eat and our relationship with food. Joining us now to talk about emotional eating and binge eating is Katie Middlestead, outreach and clinical consultant and licensed psychologist in Florida for the National Alliance for Eating Disorder. Thank you so much for joining us, Katie. Thank you so much for having me. You can also join the conversation, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Um, Katie, I want to start by asking if you can define what BED is and what emotional eating looks like. Sure thing. Yeah. Um, as was previously mentioned, they are they're two different things. So I think it's really important for us to, to draw some distinctions. So when we're talking about BED or binge eating disorder, it is a diagnosis that we have um, in our DSM as an eating disorder. And BED can be diagnosed um, when somebody has a pattern of eating what might be considered unusually large amounts of food in a specific amount of time. Um, like, for example, maybe in an unusually large amount of food in a two-hour period. And they tend to do this um, on a regular basis, and there often tends to be a feeling of really feeling out of control with eating, um, maybe eating when, when full or beyond fullness or not hungry, um, and often eating really, really rapidly, um, often eating in secret. Um, those are a, a few of the, the components that we often can see with binge eating disorder. And, and with binge, oh, go ahead. Oh, no, go, go, go for it. Yeah, I was just going to say, and with binge eating disorder, you know, we're also seeing um, a lot of distress typically. It's really affecting the person or, or often really affecting their health. I was just going to say it, it's a complex issue, right? And can you share with us, uh, where does BED originate? Does it come from families or what are your thoughts about that? Yeah, it's a really important question. Um, again, as we've heard, I think it, it can be really multifaceted. So there does appear to be a genetic component to BED. It does appear to run in families. Um, as, as you previously mentioned, it is a fairly new diagnosis. So the research is still kind of catching up. But we do see that with, with other eating disorders, and it seems to be the case with BED, um, they can share common gene variations um, and, and they tend to run in families. Um, so there is, does seem to be a strong genetic component and then we also think that there's probably an environmental component as well, um, where the, the eating disorder, binge eating disorder can kind of get triggered by, by things in the environment, too. And so as research begins to catch up, um, can you talk about the significance of BED being added to the DSM? 
Yeah, absolutely. So before BED was added to the DSM, it was looped into like a, a an other specified eating disorder category, which is kind of a catch-all for, for eating feeding behaviors that are causing a lot of distress or impairment, but don't fully meet other criteria. But, you know, BED is actually the most um, prevalent eating disorder of all eating disorders. So even though people might think of, of something like anorexia nervosa or bulimia nervosa, BED affects so many more Americans and people around the world. So I think it's really important that it's been, been named um, so that people can get effective treatment and so that we can be doing the research to help, to help people effectively. So you just talked about the importance of it being named at the, in the DSM and um, mentioning anorexia and bulimia. Why is, it, why is it important to make those differentiations between the three? Yeah, it's really important because um, I think that there, there's kind of this archaic stereotype that eating disorders look a certain way. Um, they, they have a certain body size, maybe a smaller body size. Um, or they affect a certain race or kind of person. And the reality is, is that folks can experience, I mean, really all eating disorders, a whole variety of eating disorders in any, any body size, including BED. Um, but having BED really recognized, I think, um, gives, gives kind of legitimacy in a way to to do this kind of eating behavior as something that is worthy of treatment, as something that that people, you know, it's it's not your fault, <laughs> and that um, treatment is available and important. I think you hit a a, a keynote of it's not um, it's not a personal um, responsibility, right? And mm-hmm. um, and in terms of getting a diagnosis, um, a lot of people engage in emotional eating, overeating. What differentiates this from being an actual disorder? Yeah, another really important question. Um, So I think that those are, you know, we probably have three distinct things to name. So overeating would be, you know, part of what I would consider really normal eating behavior for for all of us, where everyone from time to time might overeat or eat beyond fullness. Um, And, you know, it's not not something to be pathologized, right? It's it's part of normal eating behavior where sometimes we we overdo it or we eat mindlessly or we're with friends and community and it's it's just it's part of of our everyday experience. And um oh, sorry, mm-hmm. go continue. Yeah, sure. Um and then like emotional eating you you had mentioned, you know, that can be a really effective nervous system regulation tool to use food to help to help help in emotional times, right? And so when we're talking about binge eating disorder, that's where people are eating that really, really unusual amount of food. Um, And it's happening pretty regularly and it's causing a lot of distress. You mentioned that binge eating is is when you're eating much larger amounts of food in a a smaller Mm -hmm. period of time. And you've also talked about earlier how there's this feeling of of shame and guilt, and and you tend to do that secretly. Can you talk about all of that? Getting putting you know, putting all that together creates a different, uh, very difficult cycle to break. I imagine. Yeah, it can be an incredibly difficult cycle to break out of. 
because binge eating disorder um, and a lot of eating disorders, as you mentioned, tend to tend to come with a lot of shame and guilt. Um, and I think binge eating disorder in particular can because our culture does kind of look down on on quote unquote overeating or binge eating. So that can kind of contribute to the shame. Um, so, so yeah, I think the shame and the guilt, you know, it, it feeds into a cycle where, where people feel ashamed, they feel guilty. So then they go, okay, I'm not going to do that again. I'm not going to overeat or I'm going to eat quote unquote healthy. And then they, they might kind of actually restrict or, or feel restricted in what they're quote unquote allowed to eat. But then because they're human, that tension builds, they can't maintain that for so long. And then they end up overdoing it or binging again and feel that shame. And it, it can be that really tricky cycle to get out of. And, and so um, how does that impact overall, overall health? Because it's like we've talked about before, it's not just impacting one thing, right? It, it, it impacts everything. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, of course. I think it impacts a lot of different aspects of people's health. So we've, we've kind of touched on some of those mental health factors where it can contribute to, to shame and guilt, which can kind of integrate um, depressive or, or anxious symptoms. Um, eating disorders in general, uh, one, of, one of the, one, one colleague I work with who facilitates groups here, um, she calls eating disorders a carpool illness because the eating disorder tends to be in the car, but there also tend to be other disorders in the car, like like trauma disorders or depressive or anxiety or personality. Um, and it can be kind of a chicken or the egg thing, right? Um, what's what's causing what? So, so yes, lots of different psychological pieces. And then of course, physical health can be can be really impacted. You know, we can see increased blood pressure and cholesterol sleep apnea, heart disease, type 2 diabetes, um, lipid abnormalities, um, just to name a few. And so, I mean, I know you're scratching the surface talking about the impact, right, on uh, with obesity. And so can we talk about um, the impact on obesity and weight in terms of is BD underdiagnosed and not considered when doctors are working with patients about weight management? Yeah, I think it is underdiagnosed. Um, and, and to be clear, people can experience binge eating disorder in a variety of body sizes. Um, so people certainly don't have to be, you know, quote unquote obese. And, and I'll also say most eating disorder professionals don't love the word obese, although, you know, it has merit because in the, the medical field, um, we're able to all know what we're talking about. Um, but because it does, it, it, that word can kind of contribute to some of the weight stigma that's been mentioned. Um, but all that to say is I do think it, it gets underdiagnosed because, you know, people might come into their doctor and, you know, their doctor's prescribing weight loss. And what gets really tricky is that weight loss can then feed into that cycle we were talking about before, where the person tries to restrict, they try to to quote unquote eat better or eat less, but then it it results in in more binging and more shame and guilt. Um, so it can be really tricky, and it's really important that medical providers are are learning about this diagnosis. 
Right. And I, I hear you mention cycle several times just in this short mm-hmm. conversation. I'm wondering, is binging similar to drug addiction? You know, um, in some ways, the there there is some research out there suggesting that um, there are common um, functions going on. And there's some research that's suggesting that there's not. But I think in a really practical way, binging and, and you know, overeating, emotional eating, they can be very effective nervous system regulation tools. Just like we could think about, you know, how alcohol can kind of numb or, or drugs can kind of numb. So I think in a practical way, we can think about how um, there are some, some commonalities and, and so I would also integrate, you know, compassion for people in that, that, that binging, it serves a function. It helps in a lot of ways. Um, so we need to come to it with a lot of compassion and grace. And as you navigate this sort of new area, if you will, um, how do you respond to the idea that binge eating can be solved with more by, or can be solved by having more self-control or just willpower over overeating? How do you respond to someone who believes in that? Yeah, I would, I would say, you know, <laughs> it's not that simple. Um, I think that, you know, for a lot of folks, they, they wouldn't ever choose this. Um, people who, who have binge eating disorder and who are binging, like generally it's not fun. Um, so if they could just have self-control and just stop, they would. <laughs> Um, it's it's just not that simple. As I mentioned, there are really powerful genetic and environmental and nervous system regulation uh, functions going on. And so it really needs to be treated in a holistic way. And I guess sort of on that note, you know, what are some tools people can use to combat binge eating? Yeah, for sure. So I would, of course, recommend anybody who's resonating with some of what I'm saying um, to reach out for help from a licensed professional. Um, And I think, practically speaking, it's really, really important for breaking that cycle, for people to be nourishing themselves fully and regularly. So a lot of folks who binge eat, you know, they might restrict during the day and then get super hungry and, and overdo it at night. So to be giving yourself full permission to eat throughout the days, to give yourself permission to eat foods that you enjoy. And when you do find yourself, you know, overdoing it, to remember some of what you've heard today and, and offer yourself a lot of compassion and grace. From Connecticut Public Radio, this is where we live. I'm Catherine Shen. That was Katie Middlestead, outreach and clinical consultant and licensed psychologist in Florida's National Alliance for Eating Disorder. Katie, thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thank you so much. Coming up next, we talk about a developing field of research surrounding weight stigma and anti-fat bias. You can also join the conversation, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. Weight stigma can make battling obesity and having a healthy body image challenging at best. 
As we kick off the holiday season and the New Year's to follow, we're often inundated with ads on the latest diet trends and quick weight loss fixes. Joining us now to unpack all that and combating weight stigma is Dr. Jeffrey Hunger. He's an assistant professor of social psychology at Miami University in Ohio. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Catherine. And you can also join the conversation, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. And Jeff, kind of want to start with if you can talk about some of the research done on anti-fat bias and weight stigma. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, we can think about uh, the research on anti-fat bias and weight stigma from two different perspectives. So first, there's research that focuses on the perspective of folks who hold or who harbor anti-fat bias. So a a lot of the earlier work in social psychology took this perspective and it was tackling questions like who might be more biased than others or, you know, what are the individual or personality factors that are going to predict a person's level of anti-fat bias? And so that is one, you know, very large area of research that's really trying to understand, you know, the strength of anti-fat bias and how that might lead folks to engage in things like discriminated against um, higher body weight individuals. But then there's this whole other area of work on how anti-fat bias and weight stigma affects folks who are on the receiving end of it. So folks that are, you know, really being the target of it. And that's kind of where most of the research in my lab sits. So we're really focused on understanding, you know, the consequences of weight stigma for folks who are experiencing it. And so how does weight stigma impact weight, health, and quality of life? This this could be its own uh, like hour long conversation. I believe it. Uh, I believe it. Yeah, but you know, uh, as we you know as we just heard from from Dr. Pagato, you know, weight stigma is stressful, and we know that this has really significant implications for our physical health. So, uh, as she mentioned, it's things like increases in heart rate and blood pressure, uh, increases in in blood sugar changes in things like uh, cholesterol levels, uh, inflammation, all of these sort of really important sort of clinical indicators seem to be a consequence of experiencing weight stigma. And then over time, you know, when these things are are sort of experienced much more chronically, this can lead to what we uh, are, are sort of what uh, folks call allostatic load, where kind of multiple systems in the body become overtaxed and dysregulated. So folks might begin to show dysregulation in the cardiovascular system, so things like developing hypertension, uh, right alongside metabolic dysfunction, so things like insulin resistance or development of type 2 diabetes. I mean, we also see that weight discrimination is a, a risk factor for mortality. So there are a real broad array and sort of deep sort of impacts that weight-based stigma and weight-based discrimination can have on physical health. And so we're in a space where we've got the holidays coming up. You're doing this research. We're having this conversation. Um, but do you think there's a reason why these conversations, I think they're happening more often. And do you think it's important for that to start happening more? These conversations about thinking about the impact of weight stigma or? Yeah, just what we've been talking about. Yeah, absolutely. I think that, you know, we have definitely seen or I've seen over the the course of my 10 or 12 years, you know, researching this, seen a a much sort of mainstreaming of these conversations. And I think it's really important. I think that there was a period of time where folks, whether they be doctors, public health professionals, or just, you know, sort of your day-to-day folks used to think that weight stigma was actually going to be a motivator, that all we needed to do was shame people a little bit for their weight. And that was going to somehow miraculously kind of spur 
changes in their health or changes in their health behavior or was going to result in weight loss or whatever. Like, And none of that is at all true. And so I think it's really good to sort of bring this into the conversations that we're having now when we think about a much more holistic view of health and shaming and otherwise kind of uh, stigmatizing folks for their weight is not going to do anything good when it comes to thinking about how we can promote well-being across the weight spectrum. And so you just create a beautiful bridge to my next question, actually, is it sounds like the typical weight management and obesity intervention work, um, typical ones have been found to be very ineffective. Why is that? Yeah, I think the, you know, we've seen a a very weight centric approach uh, for 30, 40, almost 50 years now, and it hasn't really changed anything in terms of uh, for example, even weight outcomes, you know, even if we want to think about what these folks that are really invested in a weight centric approach want to see is weight loss. And in general, we don't see that much weight loss when it comes to all sorts of interventions, whether it be diet, whether it be exercise, some combination thereof. But even when we do see weight loss, we don't see any improvements in health that are really associated with the the amount of weight lost. So maybe folks get a little bit healthier on an intervention because they work out more, not because they happen to lose, you know, whatever the average is, is like six or seven pounds on these interventions. And so I think that what we're finally getting closer to is moving away from this sort of laser focus on weight as the primary outcome. And like Sherry said, focusing on actual indicators of health, like we've got all sorts of other really important things that we can hone in on that are not just a BMI or the the number on a scale. You know, we've got all sorts of clinical indicators that she mentioned. We've got all sorts of really, really important health behaviors that we can encourage folks to engage in if they're not. Um, But we can just really think much deeper, much more broadly and kind of move past just thinking that a single number is going to somehow give us an indicator of health or not. And speaking of mainstreaming these conversations, um, can you explain weight bias changes depending on generation? Yeah, so that's a really interesting question because we kind of are seeing, I think, you know, this is a little bit anecdotal, but I think we are seeing perhaps a little bit of a generational shift in the younger generation seeming to be a little bit more ready to challenge diet culture and sort of embrace body positivity that we may not have seen in some of the generations before. I'm, of course, again, shooting from the hip here, don't have uh, fantastic data on this, but it seems to be something that I'm seeing anecdotally. And that's fantastic. I will say there's nothing, nothing wrong with folks wanting to push back against challenging diet culture and being more body positive. The unclear piece is if this is actually going to shift to any sort of appreciable differences in weight bias itself. You know, is this going to shift folks sort of weight stigma? Is it going to make them less anti-fat? Is it going to have sort of these other really things that we want to see as well? And that kind of, I think, remains to be seen. So I guess you're saying having an actual conversation rather than shouting at whoever is making the comment to you is what I'm assuming here. Um, So in terms of um, with the holidays coming up, how do you how do you shut down those conversations effectively and respectfully around binge eating in, in order to, like you said, facilitate those conversations across generations? Yeah, and I think you make a really good point about even wanting to have these conversations across generations, whether they be about, you know, dieting, whether they be about anti-fat bias, whatever, you know, is going to be challenging, especially when we're thinking about having these conversations sort of within the context of our own families. We we know that the holidays on their own can be challenging and stressful enough without having to potentially broach something that 
may be uh, leading to very challenging conversations when, you know, folks are just gathering once a year to celebrate whatever their uh, holiday is that year. Um, I think that we can start by recognizing and resisting the language of diet culture around this time. So, you know, especially around the holidays, we kind of see the sneaky ways that diet culture can emerge, especially in conversations that we have around particular foods. So like that slice of cake is not some quote unquote guilty pleasure that needs to be compensated for, you know, you know, but as you and Katie discussed earlier, diet culture wants us to feel shame and feel guilt around even thinking about, let alone engaging and eating certain types of foods. And so I think one really important starting point is to figure out how to resist this. And, you know, part of it is recognizing the language. But, you know, if we do run into folks uh, making offhand comments, whether it be, you know, about what you're eating or, you know, perhaps changes in your body, you should feel absolutely empowered to push back because even small comments can go a long way. So if it's something as simple as, you know, letting Uncle Luke know that there's no reason for him to be commenting on your plate of food while you're all just trying to enjoy Christmas dinner or reminding your cousin that conversations about weight loss are not something you want to talk about and are off the table, especially in front of children. You know, this can this can be a productive approach. It reminds folks of your boundaries and hopefully gets them to reflect on how their comments, regardless of intent, can still be poorly received. Well, I'm glad you mentioned children because I do want to ask too, you know, is there any specific ways of being more careful because they're listening, even though they may seem like they're not listening, but you know they're listening. Are there ways to sort of prevent that or just be more careful? I mean, absolutely they are listening. And you you hit on a really important point there. Like even if you don't think that they are listening what the adults are talking about, they are there, they are picking it up, they are in sort of the the air or the water they're swimming in that and if that air or that water is you know rife with diet talk rife with weight loss anti-fat bias they're going to pick it up and so i think that we can these things can be effective when you have kids around so you know starting by modeling it starting by you know if you have kids i don't have kids myself but i've got nieces and nephews and so starting by modeling resistance to sort of the the diet culture and the diet talk don't slip into that occasionally challenging it when you need to, if it seems to slip out from other folks around you, but also just sort of really doing something beyond just sort of this idea of let's not talk about bodies or weight, but flipping it to let's embrace and celebrate that all bodies are good bodies, that kids, adults, everyone has variability in their bodies, and we can celebrate that because this this gets uh, kids and adolescents a little bit closer to not feeling sort of the shame and the guilt that a lot of the older generation are still sort of harboring because the culture that they grew up in when it you know, came to weight and weight loss was much different. And I think we have the opportunity now to think about ways that we can kind of flip that script a little bit. And so speaking of holidays and being with your family and New Year's is just around the corner, how do you navigate the diet push that is coming in to the new year? I mean, just driving into work today, I actually noticed two billboards um, related to weight loss. You know, what, are your, what are your thoughts about that? Right. You know, we are we are hitting as soon as that, you know, was it uh, November 1st hit and Mariah Carey played December 1st hit and we're getting all of our uh, New Year's resolution articles or New Year's resolution and uh, social media posts. And, you know, so we're going to get flooded with these these things that are really 
usually focused on diet and weight loss. And so knowing that this is what this season looks like, I like using this time to identify a social goal for a New Year's resolution. You know, our social connections are vital to our health and well-being. And these types of resolutions are often way easier to follow through beyond just like the month of January, because we know that a lot of weight loss related sort of resolutions like kind of fall by the wayside pretty quickly. So, you know, in the past, I've made it a point to call my parents more that year, or this year I'm considering a resolution about expressing more gratitude to folks around me. It can be something as as simple as that. But I will say, if you do want to set a health goal, uh, set one that is sustainable and not centered around weight and weight loss. If you're trying to be more physically active, this does not mean that you need to immediately go out and sign up for a marathon. You know, even just finding ways to be more active, regardless of intensity, is going to be good for well-being. But even then, there are a ton of reasons why being active may not be a desired or accessible goal for a lot of people. So folks should feel empowered to check out from the New Year's diet and health push altogether. You know, there's nothing all too special about January 1st, like Sherry mentioned, and then you can start health behavior change at different points. Um, and so it's not a miraculous point at which the calendar flips and folks are going to be way more likely to engage in behavior change. And at the end of the day, you really don't owe anyone a resolution if you just don't want to have to do that. That was Dr. Jeffrey Hunger, Assistant Professor of Social Psychology at the Miami, Miami University in Ohio. Thanks so much for being on the show with us. And thanks for mentioning Mariah Carey. <laughs> Thank you so much. I will always make sure to bring her in. I'm Catherine Shen. Today's show was produced by Tess Turbo. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. Download Where We Live anytime on your favorite podcast app. Thank you so much for listening.